Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. God, would you station yourself before each person here? It's so easy, God. It's so easy. I fall prey to it all the time and imagining that this is all on accident that there is no hidden hand writing our stories, walking alongside us. And yet we know it when we look back, when we consider our past, when we consider our histories, we can see your hand so clearly. Why can't we see it in the moment? Why does it come in glimpses? And I think the reason why is because we're so distracted by so many other voices. Our hearts are not still enough and quiet enough to hear you. Our hearts are too hard. They're stubborn. They're too stubborn to hear you. And so I pray right now, God, that you would station yourself before each person here, that you would dislodge whatever is in their hearts that are keeping your voice from entering in. And that as we would leave this space today, we would know on a deeper level who you are, who Jesus is as the visible image of the invisible God and what you think about us. So we praise you, Lord. It's in your name, amen. All right, so if you've been with us in the month of August, you know that we are in a series about our tables. As Nathan said, they are our small groups. They've been on a temporary moratorium in the summer. They're gonna be launching again this fall at the fall kickoff. Um, If we were to sum up tables for us, sort of the mantra, the ethos behind them, it is practicing the art of hospitality and celebration. Practicing the art of hospitality and celebration. And uh, two weeks ago, we talked about why we do them, what is sort of like the ground spring of of tables, which is the joy of Jesus's love and resurrection. Bryant talked last week about uh, the pillar of celebration and why that's a component, why we need to practice that. And today, I'm gonna talk about hospitality, why that's a core element, why it's a spiritual practice to practice hospitality and why that's a crucial part of our tables. Hospitality as a value and something that requires us practicing it. So why? Why do we need to do that? Well, firstly, what I realized as I was sort of preparing for this is we're not very good at it. I'm not very good at it. Uh, I still remember, um, so Anna, my wife, she's from Portland, Oregon. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. We got married in January 2015 in Portland, Oregon. And then about two or three days later, she packed up two small suitcases and moved all the way back across the country to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I was finishing seminary, finishing grad school. Um, she had never lived anywhere else outside of Portland. And so obviously, you know, I was like, I, I, wanna, I wanna prepare the, the apartment for her. I, I, was, I was living with my younger brother at the time who was finishing undergrad. So of course, for a new wife, it's a perfect situation, right? Moving with your brother-in-law. Um, and if I'm being honest, it was, it was kind of a bachelor pad. As she tells it, she walks in and there's like sports memorabilia on every wall and bowls on the carpet where bowls don't 
need to be. And, um, and, uh, but, but people were asking me, you know, are, are, you, are you ready for Anna? Like, are you, are you ready to welcome your new wife into your house? And of course, I'm thinking, it's the best of both worlds. I get, I get a new wife. I have my best friend, my brother. I still get to play PlayStation. Like, this is great. Um, and, I, and, and they're asking, like, are you, are you ready? Is, are you ready for hospitality? And I'm like, I got this. I got this. And I look them in the eyes whenever they're asking, like, and they're like, what are you doing to prepare? And I go, I bought candles. <laughs> no joke, guys. That was the extent of my hospitality game. I bought my new wife candles. And I'm not even talking about like Yankee candles that, that smell really nice. I'm talking about the $4.99 pack of 12 tea light candles that you get from Walmart. That's what I bought. And I was like, welcome home, babe. <laughs> Let's go to the bedroom. Come on. That's what I thought. I might have had black mold on my window, but my candle game was strong, okay? I certainly need to practice hospitality because I do not get it. (laughs) And then I started looking into um, sort of the culture. What is our cultural definition of hospitality? And I realized our culture is actually really confused about it. Uh, As I was trying to define it, I I couldn't define it. So I said something, I mean, what is hospitality? Is it, is it warmth to people? Is it welcoming people into your homes? Do homes even have to be involved? I asked Anna to give me a definition, and she is a lot better at it, and this is what she said, verbatim. Uh, the art of inviting and welcoming someone uh, and making them feel welcome in a space, both physical and uh, eyes-rolled metaphysical space. She struggled to define it. What is hospitality? Can you define it? Think in your head for a sec. Can you define what hospitality is? If you do a Google search, what is hospitality? You know what it brings up? The hospitality sector, (laughs) which makes sense for a Western capitalist society. This is not a cultural trait that we all have to do. No, no, this is a specialized group that we outsource. I don't do hospitality. The hospitality industry does hospitality, right? We in the West, we privatize things. We, we monetize them. So the human responsibility to take care of each other, to welcome people warmly, that's not for us anymore. That's for hotels and restaurants. The culture doesn't know what hospitality is. We've created our own private sector. Interestingly, it shows up in our architecture. This is something I learned uh, about uh, the building of homes. There was this aspect of homes, when, when you built a new home, that maybe you don't see anymore. Uh, you probably remember it. Uh, it was called the front porch. Anyone remember the front porch? Anyone grow up with the front porch? Yeah, I'm from the South, you see them. But here's what's really fascinating. It's been, it's been documented that after World War II, uh, developers stopped building homes with front porches. You know what they started building? Back porches. Yeah. So now this, this space that was a sign of community, the front porch, of shouting hello and come sit and have iced tea to passing travelers, neighbors, people who were walking past. Now it's been taken away and moved, cloistered to the back of the house, which means if you wanna invite people to the back porch, they have to go through the home first, which means hospitality is for those you want to select, not just the random stranger passing by. Something I noticed in New York, No one sits on their stoops anymore, at least where I live. I grew up with Hey Arnold. Anyone grew up with Hey Arnold? Y'all remember Stoop Kid? Where's Stoop Kid? I don't see him anymore. And granted, he was afraid, but at least he was on his stoop. We don't have time 
We don't have emotional bandwidth to sit on our stoops anymore. And guess what? Hospitality takes time and emotional energy. Our emotional bandwidth does not go to loving strangers anymore. We don't value that. If we do have time and emotional energy, you know what it goes to? Loving myself, (laughs) my work, my career, my family, my self-care. We're even capitalists in our relationships. And that's okay. Like, I mean, it makes sense if we've been raised here. We think, does this conversation add value to my life? If not, then I don't know if I have time for it. And hospitality at first glance, let's be very clear. Hospitality at first glance is not a value-adding practice. (laughs) You are giving away. Your your bottom line is going to be lessened when you welcome someone into your home. I remember my, my first year in New York, Anna and I, we lived in Astoria, Queens. I was a pastoral resident at Astoria. And um, there was a guy who lived across the hall from us, and he looked like a shut-in. He, he had a mean-looking face, disheveled beard, just a grimace everywhere he went, walker, caretaker. I didn't see him often, um, but when I did, I mean, I would say hello so he knew I was friendly. But I never engaged him in a conversation. And then one day, uh, I had, it was, it was moving into fall, so of course it was like the first cool day, which was nice. I had time and I had emotional bandwidth and uh, Anna and I were gonna be moving to Brooklyn in about a couple weeks and so I decided to grab a beer and sit on my stoop. (laughs) And when I grabbed my beer and I went out to the stoop, he was there. And so I asked him if he wanted a beer and he said yes. And so we sat down and we drank a beer together and we had a conversation. You know what happened? He was wonderful, (laughs) right? He was wonderful, his name was Billy. He was born in that apartment. He'd lived in the same place for 51 years. Both his parents died in that apartment. He told me about the neighborhood in Astoria and how it had changed. I just asked him question after question. He was a diehard Yankees fan. He had every single DVD of of the World Series championships the Yankees had won in that season. So he told me about past Yankees teams. It was an incredible conversation. How many conversations do we have that we don't remember, right? And yet I I remember this conversation. I remember Billy. Our culture says hospitality is a specialized industry. It does take time and emotional bandwidth, and both of those are premiums we're not willing to pay. So we outsource it. We're confused about hospitality. What is it? Why do we need to practice it? Interestingly, in the New Testament, the word hospitality is only used twice. The concept is all over the place, and we'll talk about that. But the word is only used twice. And the word in Greek is philoxenia. Philoxenia. Maybe you recognize the compound elements of that word. Philos, Philadelphia, brotherly love, love, and xenos, stranger. So hospitality, at its core, is love of the stranger. Fascinating. Now, I realize as when I sort of dove into that, another reason why our culture is so confused about loving strangers, confused about hospitality, because the word with xenos that we're most familiar with, that we hear all the time, is xenophobia. That word is thrown around a lot. Fear-phobia of Xenos, the stranger, fear of the stranger. 
So we talk about strangers in our society, but we don't talk about love of the strangers. We talk about who the xenophobes are, fear of the strangers. And let's be real, even the pundits who get really mad at the xenophobes, at those who fear strangers, they don't really, at least I don't hear them tell me how they love the strangers. They don't tell me how they practice hospitality. They just tell me that they're really mad at those who fear the strangers. So if we're being clear, um, we have an us versus them situation. Them is those who fear strangers. Us is those who don't, or us is those who don't like those who fear strangers. But guess who's left out of the whole conversation? The actual strangers. The actual love of the strangers. Nowhere is discussion about actual love and what it looks like to love Strangers, because it takes time and emotional bandwidth, and that's, that's premiums America's not willing to pay. It reminds me of a line from Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, which is an incredible book you need to read. And he's writing about America's rejection of the stranger and the reasons why we do so. And he says, basically, we reject the stranger so that we can make money off the stranger. As soon as we welcome the stranger in, we realize they're not a stranger anymore. They actually become a friend. And then you can't make money off them quite as easily. And he was talking about how, how he thought he was one rejected as a black man in America. And he was. But then as he was uh, uh, detailing his time in, in college, he realized that this penchant to reject others, to fear them, to hate them, and therefore add value to his existence, that it was also in him. He writes, I am black and I have been plundered and have lost my body. But perhaps I too had the capacity for plunder. Maybe I would take another human's body to confirm myself in a community. Perhaps I already had. Hate gives identity. The fill in the blank with whatever derogatory term you want. Illuminates the border. Illuminates what we ostensibly are not illuminates the dream of being white, of being a man. We name the hated strangers and thus are confirmed in the tribe. We name who we fear, who we hate, and therefore we are confirmed in our own tribe. What is he saying? He's saying that America understands itself, its identity, by defining what it is not. We are not the stranger, therefore we are America. Hating the stranger, fearing the stranger is like air to us. It keeps us alive. It defines our existence. And let's not give America too much credit because this is very natural for nation states. Nation states fear strangers because it's economically more advantageous for us to fear them. He's saying that to love a stranger, a complete stranger, is only possible if you have a really secure sense of yourself. Because loving a stranger will take a lot of time and a lot of energy and you won't come out on top. Moreover, it's not just a, a social or political thing. Evolutionarily, it's very natural for us to fear strangers. It's very natural. Uh, humans define themselves by who they're against not what they are for. We're very tribalistic. Our brains, we are evolutionarily predisposed to process tons of information. We are constantly processing information and we're categorizing it in split second time. 
And not just the easy stuff, the surface level stuff, but deeper stuff about how a person cuts their eyes or how a person laughs or, or whatever it may be, what a person enjoys or what books they read or don't read or shows. We are forming categorizations of who they are, what kind of stranger they are. Uh, prior to 1998, the reason why this is really interesting, because prior to 1998, we thought, uh, for dis- we thought discrimination was actually not our default setting. Um, it was sort of uh, the exception. It was the aberration. And we realized that is not the case at all. Humans are naturally predisposed to discriminate against people. That's what we do. In 1998, a University of Washington researchers, they proved this through, through something called the Implicit Association Test. You can find it online, IAT, and uh, just be, be forewarned, uh, you're gonna get a very clear picture of yourself. Uh, they have tests that you can take that sort of pits together um, various groups, societal groups, and it reveals to you sort of your subconscious implicit discrimination against them. But it's very natural. Evolutionarily, it's very natural. It's what we do. It's how we stay alive. We view in-group members as more complex and diverse, and out-group members, we view them as very homogenous, as all the same. We create a stereotype, a caricature of them. Humans don't welcome strangers because we are highly invested in feeling superior to strangers. It keeps us alive. But because we don't know ourselves as worthy of love, as Coates suggested, we don't have the capacity to love others and certainly not to love an unknown stranger. This was the issue with the Pharisees to Jesus. This is why Jesus was so mad at the Pharisees and by extension, religion in general because religion is just doing the exact same thing but what makes it far more dangerous is that it's putting God's language in there. It's putting Jesus' name in there. It's basically, he's saying, uh, religion is, uh, the Pharisees were, you know, we avoid these behaviors and we avoid these beliefs and if you avoid all these things, therefore you're part of our tribe. And Jesus is like blowing that whole thing up. He's like, no, what makes us who we are is our overwhelming sense to love and to be truly in relationship with each other. Loving strangers is hard and complicated and messy and unfortunately, and I, there's, I'm sure people in this room who would call themselves a follower of Jesus and those who would not. Unfortunately, a lot of what we call Christianity is just pharisaical religion. I'm sorry it is, which makes it all the more confusing for us because they're throwing Jesus' name around, but they seem to act just like a normal human would, and they are. And it's also part of the story because the story is allowing God to get to the root of us to the root of our existence, to the root of our identity, through Jesus' love. Love is trying to get to the root of us, and we fear him as well. So it's part of the story. But that's why Jesus gets so mad at the Pharisees. Our culture, our human nature, we are really confused about hospitality. Why should we practice it? I'm gonna try to make this as clear as possible. We need to practice hospitality because hospitality, love of the stranger, is at the very heart of God. The absolute core of God is a love for the unknown, for the other, for the stranger. I kept looking into the etymology of hospitality and I realized that it derives from Latin, the Latin word hospice, which is where we get hospital, by the way, But hospice has this very um, 
big sense of the word. It can mean anything from host or guest or stranger. So hospitality is some sort of welcoming a stranger into your home. And in the process, they go from being a stranger to a guest to part of the family, to the host. And when you realize that, you realize that this is the entire story of God. God creates the world to love it. He creates the world to love it, but love has to be a choice. He doesn't create people and forces them to love him back. Love is a choice. So what does God do? He creates us as strangers so that he can host us in himself. God creates strangers to love, to host us, and hopefully we accept his invitation. We enter into his home. We enter into a relationship. And then we begin the process of going from stranger to guest to part of the family. And at that point, we choose to love God back. But how do we choose to love the host? How do we go from stranger to host? Where does God hospitably invite us to be loved by him and to love him back? In Romans 5, verse 8, this is what we read. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, read, while we were still strangers to God, wanted nothing to do with him, Christ died for us. This is important. We are strangers to God, but we're also more than that. We're also enemies of God. Why? Because there's something within us We call it sin in the Bible. It's the shorthand word. There's something within us that doesn't want to love others, that wants to just love myself. So God creates us to love us, to host us, but then we're not just strangers, we're also adversaries. We're enemies. And God proves his love for us in that while we were still his enemies, God came in the form of Jesus and died for us. And this, this friends, is the shocking part of the gospel. God is not just the host of the world. He's also the ultimate guest of the world. He makes all that is. He is the host of all that is. And yet he comes in Jesus as the guest of the world. Will you receive his invitation Any God can create a world and host it in power, but the true God, true love, becomes the guest of strangers, becomes the guest of enemies so as to love them. Jesus comes to our tables, the tables of his enemies, and we do to him exactly what we do to all strangers. We kill him, we fear him, and he allows it for the sake of his love. Love of the stranger at its deepest is love of the enemy. And for all those who see this love in Jesus and are moved by it, who recognize the invitation to love him back, to respond, well, we then welcome God into our friendship. Friends, God hosted us so that we could host God. God created us, but the way back into relationship with him is through receiving him at our table first. 
seeing Jesus and receiving him, his invitation for relationship. Because when we, when we see the story of Jesus, what is Jesus first? Well, first he's the stranger. We don't know who this is. This doesn't make sense. Why would God come in the flesh and die on the cross? But then as we sort of enter into learning more, he's no longer the stranger. He's the guest. He's nice enough. We like him. He teaches some really cool stuff. And at a certain point, different for all of us, Jesus ceases to be the guest and we recognize our eyes are open. Oh my gosh, you're the host of the world. You're the creator of all that is. And at that point, we've completed the circle. We have chosen to love God back. Therefore, we are part of his family. Friends, we have to practice hospitality. We have to love the stranger because this is the clearest representation that we love Jesus himself. In Hebrews 13, one of the times it uses the word hospitality, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. In Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, and whatever you have done for one of the least of these, my brothers, talking about the strangers of society, the marginalized of society, and whatever you have done and loving, or have done for one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done to me. When we love the stranger, we love Jesus. When we love the stranger, we see Jesus. When we love the stranger, we are welcoming Jesus and we are entering into that process of becoming his family again. So I wanna invite the, the band back up and I just wanna sum this up with a statement. Hospitality takes a prioritization of your time and a prioritization of your emotional energy. It is not evolutionarily natural to love strangers nor does our society know how to do it, which is why we outsource it to a specialized sector. But to welcome into your life and your home the awkward, hard to love, unknown stranger is eventually to welcome and to see Jesus. And just to be clear on that verse from Hebrews about welcoming strangers and entertaining angels, I do think there are angels and demons. And if you come back this fall, I'm gonna explain why I think that's the case. And if anyone's like, whoa, that's weird. Do you know that the leading uh, theory in physics right now, string theory, if true, posits that there are 11 dimensions that we're living in right now? 11 dimensions. Why can't one of them just be a spiritual dimension where the angels and the demons? I digress, anyway, anyway. <laughs> I do think we can entertain angels in our midst. But also in that verse, when it says, do not neglect to show hospitality, for by doing that, you have entertained angels without knowing it. I think what the writer's also getting at is when we welcome and love strangers, we get a glimpse of Jesus. We get a glimpse of the image of God. To welcome others, to love them, is eventually to see the one who welcomed us and loved us who has reconciled the world back to God. It's to have a moment when the veil is pulled back and you stare at this person and astonishingly, you couldn't see it before, but you see Christ. You see Jesus in them. And my conversation with Billy, when he was telling me that both his parents had passed and now he lived by himself and he was really sick, and he had the caretaker. There was a moment 
where he said his parents had died, and I said, I'm so sorry. And he was awkward, so he didn't respond for a second, and he looked out, and without looking at me, he just says, I really miss them. And it broke me. (laughs) And he took a sip of his beer. And in that moment, friends, I'm not exaggerating this. In that moment, the veil was pulled back. And I looked at this man, this awkward shut-in, and suddenly I realized, I saw him. He was my brother. He was me. I saw the eyes of Jesus take a swig of his beer, look at the world that refuses to love him back and say sadly, I really miss them. I really miss my family. And it was gone just as soon as it had come. It was gone. A couple weeks later, Anna and I moved to Brooklyn and I haven't seen Billy since. Friends, it took me an entire year to realize I was living across the hall from Jesus. Don't let that be the same for you. We practice hospitality in our table specifically because it brings us face to face with Jesus. When that veil pulls back and you look at this human and you see all the fullness of the image of God in them, It breaks you. It's so beautiful. Guys, this world is so beautiful. I know it's painful. But there's so much beauty, but it's not going to come in the places where the world tells you to look for it. It's not there. It's not in the riches and the success and the fame and popularity. It's not there. It's in sitting on your stoop with a 51-year-old guy from across the hall and having him tell you the story of his life and seeing Jesus. That's where it is. Love of the stranger, that's who God is at the core. If you wanna see God, there's your path. (laughs) There's your path. So at our tables, we invite our neighbors, we invite our colleagues, we invite our friends, we invite those we don't even know, strangers into our community. We host them as royalty because they are Jesus. And this is the process by which we love God back. First, they are the stranger, and then they are the guest, and then in their eyes, we see the host of all the world. So we're gonna pray in a second, but as we get ready to respond in song and respond at the table, it's not too late to host a table. Like Nathan said, we're having a a training session right after service today. This is the Sunday where we all go out to eat for brunch. So if you want, if you don't know what you're gonna do for brunch and you wanna learn more about what it is to host a table, come. You can text, and we have a number up here, text your name to that number, 347-560-1746. And I will text you the address, and we'd love to have you to learn more about hosting a table. But for the rest of us in this room, who maybe it's not the right time to host a table this fall, we can still be commissioned to practice hospitality. So will you pray with me? God, I'm reminded of a, of a line from a poet who says, God is not absent. 
He is everywhere in the world we are too dispirited to love. And the reality is in our society in the West, the people, the group that we are most unlikely to love are the strangers. And I get it, I get it. We've been burnt, we've experienced pain. Life is hard, we just need rest. Yes, this is true. You're not a God who exhausts us. You're a God who gives us abundant life. But would we take a cue from your story? Would we notice the humility of you, God? You create us, you create a world to love it. And then when the world refuses to love you back, you come to your own world, to your home. You come as the guest into your own home. We have to welcome you back in. And we welcome you when we see Jesus on the cross, when we look upon this display of pain and suffering and we try to allow the reality, the truth of what this represents to lodge itself deep in us. That that man, that Jewish poor man hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago is actually God in the flesh. That what we see in this moment, what we see in the accumulation of his life is the perfect expression of love. And it's true. The more we look at you, Jesus, the more we realize that we've never seen another life like yours. Every religion accounts for you. There's never been another human figure like Jesus of Nazareth. And might it just be because this scandalous, ridiculous story is true that you were inviting us to love you back, that like Billy, you take a swig of your beer and you say, I just really miss them. I just really miss you. I'm sorry. I miss you. Why are you running? I don't want bad things for you. I wanna love you. I wanna welcome you to my table. Stop listening to the world. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who needs to put their faith in you again, who needs to say yes, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, yes, I need to come back to the table. I need to receive your invitation of love again. Right now, in your hearts, would you just repeat this prayer with me, Jesus, I'm sorry I've been running. I want to receive your love for me again. I surrender. And for the rest of us, God, would you show us, Jesus, would you show us that you're living right across the hall from us? that you're living right down the block from us, that you're working in the cubicle right beside us. All the spaces where it's too hard and too much to love unknown strangers, would you show us that by doing so, we are loving you? Reveal to us the glory of your gospel. It's in your name we pray, amen. I know you're tired.
To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Weiss at lizweiss.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.